Portland is a baseball town. Our secretary didn't have anybody on the phone. <laughs> there was nobody on the phone. They were just egging me along. So they brought a little short, chubby guy in with the name Peters and put him <laughs> in my place and sent me to double A ball. Two fans, one mission to bring Major League Baseball to Oregon, fueled by Guardian Games and Athletic Field Design. This is the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Without further ado, your hosts, Ben and Dave. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Diamonds and Roses podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. And I'm Dave. And today and next week, we have a special co-host with us, Mr. Rob Nelson. How are you doing, Rob? It's a pleasure to be here. I'm doing well, thanks. Well, excellent. It's good to have you back on the podcast. Yep. You're welcome back anytime, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. You know, every time we every time we have Rob around, we hear a new story about the Portland Mavericks. Oh, yeah. Or something related to it. Yes. Yep. And that's what we're looking forward to. Exactly. Well, this week and next week, we are going to tell the story in what we can remember, well, what I've been able to research and what Rob remembers about a man named Jim Bowden, and, uh, or the Bulldog, as his nickname was. And so we want to we wanna share a little history about him in the next two episodes, and we want to have Rob uh, share what his experience was like, not only as um, a fellow player and colleague on a team, but also as a business partner. Uh, and, and a friend. So, uh, without further ado, let's, let's go ahead and jump on it. Uh, he was born James Allen Bowden, March 8th, 1939, in Newark, New Jersey. So, we got another East Coast guy. Uh, his father was George Hempstead Bowden. He attended Knights. So, one of the interesting things about George was that he attended night school at Columbia when Jim was born and went on to become a business executive. That's what it said about, uh, about George. His mother was Trudy uh, Vischer Bowden. He was the first of three sons, followed by Bob and Pete. He grew up in suburb- suburban New Jersey in Rochelle Park in Ridgewood. Uh, said he spent much of his spare time making money delivering newspapers, collecting bottle pop, pop bottles and old newspapers, mowing lawns, and washing cars. What one of us hasn't done? Right, any sounds of like those. my childhood too. When I met Jim, it was you know he's ten years older, but just a kindred spirit, just a really, really fascinating guy, real blue collar, no nonsense guy, mm-hmm. terrific guy. Yeah, uh, he grew up a New York Giants baseball fan and would often go to the polo grounds to watch the team seek out autographs and retrieve baseballs during batting practice i remember you talked about that's the expansive outfield right the polo grounds oh it was enormous you know i uh, you might remember when we talked about trying to get a ballpark here in portland i wanted starbucks to build it and call it starbucks grounds i think that would have been (laughs) hilarious and also fun but there hasn't been a ballpark called a grounds since the polo grounds and the mets left in 63 they moved uh, further out to Long Island, uh, onto Long Island, rather, in Queens, mm-hmm. when they built Shea Stadium. But the Polo Grounds is, of course, the scene of the, the famous Willie Mays catch. Right, right. 400, I don't know, and, 40 feet away. And throw. Phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, amazing. Amazing ballpark. Just a quick thing about the Polo Grounds. In April of 1962, uh, my school buddy, Bill Lukasik, and I went to the first ever Mets game in the Polo Grounds, no April way. of 1962. Cloudy, overcast day. 
My dad was a NYPD at the time, police officer, dropped us off in uptown Manhattan and said, Rob, if it rains, uh, go see a movie. I'll pick you up at five o'clock. <laughs> and there, there were two 13-year-old kids roaming the city. Awesome. Uh, and, and we had, had an absolute ball. I think there were maybe 14,000 people there. First Met game ever. That's wow. crazy. Um, so Jim ended up moving to Chicago Heights, Illinois, 30 miles south of Chicago while in high school. Uh, it said that his father had took a different job uh, there. He attended Bloom Township High School. It said during his sophomore year of high school, he was given the nickname Warm Up Mountain because <laughs> his baseball because he, his baseball team only allowed him to do pregame warm ups. He said he never played a regular season game until his, so- his sophomore year, which was the final game. Uh, Jerry Colang- Colangelo. Uh, was the star pitcher at the time. He went on to become the owner of the Diamondbacks. That's right, Jerry Colangelo. And Jim would later go on to have success in high school baseball. It says during his senior season, he pitched a no-hitter during that year. Late bloomer, but got it going. Yeah, Yeah. but it was was funny. (laughs) They call him warm-up Bowden. You know, it's a funny thing, because Jim was about, I don't know, 5'11", maybe? Maybe not even that. You know, a buck 80. And he threw hard. And he threw right over the top. He used to describe his his delivery. He was kind of like a, a V8 engine in a Volkswagen body. And, uh, <laughs> of course, it broke down. He threw right, all those innings right. early Torque. on in his career yeah. with the Yankees. Yeah. But he... Uh, he never really got a chance, you know, as a high school player. He told me some great stories about his summers as a high school player. One that I liked the best was a rainy day. He went to tryouts at, I think, an American Legion team. And he was there early, and the field was was muddy, and, and it was drizzly. And he grabbed a rake, and he was, he was raking the mound. And the coach came and said, uh, what are you doing, son? He said, well, I'm trying out for the team, and this mound is, is kind of a mess. I, I thought I would fix it up. And the coach loved him from then on. That was the kind of the oh, guy wow. that Jim was, kind of guy who would see a problem and address the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the time, he was maybe 16 years old. Hmm. Yeah. There's, there's a story about – I would watch a little clip of a video of him, and he talked about uh, his knuckleball and he talked about the pitch and it said that he started it when he was younger and he was saying well people normally gripped it with their knuckles but he, he would say well then about my time he's like I put the tips of my fingers on the ball instead of my knuckles and so well you know that's not quite right a lot of guys throw the knuckleball is a misnomer because guys don't do throw mm-hmm. it with their fingertips but Jim threw it with three three fingers on mm-hmm. the ball which is very very unusual in fact I think on the original cover of ball four doing too it, it's the uh it's the grip that he used it was different than hoyt wilhelms and phil necros and mm-hmm. and a host of other guys but jim read about the knuckleball on the back of a cereal box yeah that's what i was that's what i was gonna say next was phenomenal that, isn't yeah, it back of a cereal box and that's how he said that's how what got him yeah into necro it. being like the preeminent knuckleballer of the generation kind of um, yeah we're probably jumping around but you know when jim was a rookie in the uh, nebraska state league He's 19 years old, and there was another 19-year-old skinny kid, Phil Negro. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Jim was throwing hard at that time, and he met Negro, and he, and he thought, Jesus, this poor guy, he's got no chance. He's only got one pitch. Because they were talking shop, as you will, in the minors or the majors, for that matter. And uh, Jim talked about his repertoire, and he threw an overhand curve, fastball, slider, and he also throws the knuckleball. And Nico mm-hmm. says, oh, I throw the knuckleball too. And, and, and Jim said to him, what else do you throw? He says, nothing. <laughs> and Jim said, this guy got no chance. I mean, mm-hmm. Hall of Famer. I don't know. But Nico's got, what, 5,000 innings? I mean, it's a crazy yeah, number yeah. In, in his mm-hmm. career. But who knew? 
Yeah, so we would go on to attend Western Michigan University. It was said that he was assured that if he had a good freshman season, he would earn a baseball scholarship. And then with a good freshman season, uh, he earned his scholarship. And during the summer of 1958, he played in the Chicago Amateur League. And uh, it was during this time that a professional scout started to pay attention to him and i was watching a i think it was on johnny the johnny carson show when he went on and, and in, in the 70s and talked about that was his, after he publishing his book right yeah, yeah. Yes, so that's right he was, yeah. he was like carson he talked about how it, all the guys all the scouts came to watch the batters and that he just pitched a hell of a game that day and i think it was like a 2-0 shutout that he pitched and he's like, after the game, all the scouts like came up to him and like, who are you? Where did you come from? That's what are exactly you doing? exactly right. They, they, they took notice of him almost by mistake. <laughs> awesome. And uh, so he, he was invited to work out in front of the scouts. Uh, I read an article that Jim's father, George, wrote letters to 16 different major league teams informing him that his son had planned or planned on signing a professional contract by Thanksgiving of that year oh. and he would go on to advise them to get their bids in <laughs> <laughs> that that's the verbiage you used get their yes. bids in yeah that's awesome yeah I, I, I there might have been two teams but that you know Jim always said the uh, the Yankees bought it you know and, and they and they they you know it was like a sale you know the sale ends on Thanksgiving and they they you know they signed them yeah, he said New York Yankees' Art Stewart would be the one to sign Jim to a contract worth $30,000 at the time. Which uh, is a lot of money back then. I mean, Did he sign it for $30,000? That's what it said. That's no. what it said. Yeah, I don't know if that's today's money or, or well, then. if it was then, but yeah. 30000 back then is a lot, a lot of money. Of money. It's yeah. a chunk of change for a little right-hander. Yep. Pretty now, cool. Did he ever talk? Because I couldn't find it, but... How, how long did he spend at Western Michigan? It, d- it doesn't seem like very long. I think only one season, maybe two, but I think only one. Uh, you know, there was no free agent draft then. Mm-hmm. So that's why Jim's dad could send a letter out and say, get your, your bid in soon because, you know, Jim is plans to be going to spring training mm-hmm. and yeah. there's going to be one lucky winner. Don't be late to the party. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty funny. Jim Jim always loved his dad for that. That The dad kind of just... He, he was the agent. He was his son's yeah. agent. You know, and he said, this is how we'll do it. And it worked. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so he, at the age of 20, Jim spent most of the 1959 season between the Auburn Yankees of the New York Pennsylvania League and the Kearney in Kearney in the Nebraska State League. He went three of eight, uh, three wins, eight losses with a 5.52 ERA in 22 games. And I read that uh, they, they felt like they saw enough out of him that, Season and they saw okay. Well, this guy's got some talent, and we'll we'll continue on. And in 1960, he was promoted to Greensboro of the Class B Carolina League, and he finished 14 and eight and led the league with a 2.74 that's ERA. A big, that's a big shift. So yeah. they figured it out. And, yeah. and Carolina League's a tough league. Is it? It's considerably better than the than the Nebraska State League. How so? It, it's just better caliber. Is it? Yeah, it really was just a tougher league and. Uh, who else is that? Pat Jordan wrote a book, uh, A False Spring. Mm-hmm. Terrific book. Uh, he's probably best known as being uh, Meg Ryan's stepfather, you know, okay. Connecticut guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. His book is outstanding. It's a minor league diary. It was before Ball Four. It wasn't as textured as Jim's book was, but uh, Pat Jordan became a renowned writer, Sports Illustrated and, and oh, okay. elsewhere. And. Uh, 
really interesting take on it. And Necro was in that league, Bouton was in the league, hmm. and, and Pat Jordan was in that league. You know, they're all 19, 20 years old. Hmm. Now, was that the one where that Jim talked about that kind of s- set the tone for his book in a way because of what – was it the one that, that that was written a little bit behind the scenes from – like you were just talking about, about like some notes that that, that person took and so on? Well, well Pat Jordan's book was, was just one summer in the minor leagues. I think the one you're probably referring to is The Long Season by Jim Brosnan. Okay, yeah. yes, that's yeah. correct. And, and Brosnan's – you know, it wasn't sanitized, but it was – it was uh, more mainstream. It, it okay. certainly, when the long season came out, people thought, oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, when Jim's book came out, they said, oh, my God, these guys are crazy. <laughs> so he, Jim got into a little more detail. Yeah. And uh, you know, it, you know, it's funny how the success of Jim's book has, has resonated. I mean, when the New York Public Library at the end of the last century came out with the most 100 most influential books, Jim's was on it. The only wow, sports book on it. It was, good. Yeah. It, was pretty that was, it was the only sports book on only it. Only sports book Out of 100 on books. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. So moving on to 1961, Jim was moved to Armorilla, the Armorilla AA Texas League. He went 13-7 and seven and finished with a 2.97 ERA. So, you know, he moved up again, had a great uh, record, and he finished with a good ERA that year. Um, and he said in both team, they said both teams in 1960 and 61 won their league pennants, and they said Jim was credited to being one of the reasons why they won their pennants. Yeah, it's true. So he's on the fast track. I mean, yeah, at that point. And I just read a lot and and listened to a lot about how how much of a late bloomer kind of Jim was. And in baseball itself, at least that's what he came across as. Well, he was a sleeper. You know, by the time he got to the big leagues, he, you know, he uh, he was still a pretty young guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, uh, he he was kind of an unknown. Uh, and it's almost like the Yankees couldn't believe how good he was. And to me, the pity of Jim Bouton, and this is one of the great things about Jim, he never complained. He never badmouthed Ralph Houck or the Yankee organization. Mm. First he, two innings that Jim played in the big leagues, he threw 300 innings each season. Wow. I mean, in the big leagues today, a guy would do that in two years. Mm-hmm. So Jim had won 18 and then 21 games. I mean, he was he was really on the fast track, except that you know, he, he got the opposite treatment of Strasburg. You know, where they were really mindful of, of his arm and the potential oh, and yeah. so forth. So Jim won almost 60 games in his first two years, of uh, 40 games in his first two years, and he, and he only won another 20 over the next six or eight years he was in the big leagues. The pity of it to me was that the science wasn't there. They, baseball really the didn't torque, understand, torque science. Yeah. you know, what uh, what a fastball does to a guy. And Jim's mm-hmm. fastball was like a right-handed version of Sandy Koufax. It was right over the top. You know, the, his, his, he's probably best known for every pitch his hat fell off because he was bent over sideways, and he would just flail towards the plate and uh, he was a remarkable athlete that just just broke down and nobody really knew what to do with it and of course there wasn't the science there wasn't the technology it's interesting. in terms of surgery and so forth you referenced yeah. Strasburg and the care they took from the minute he got to the major leagues that's right in terms of, of innings and just understanding situations and rest and this and that like he's the poster child for modern treatment of a star picture mm-hmm. no question like, Jim, and I, Jim and I would yeah, talk yeah, about that all the time and when I got to play overseas we, we had kind of lean pitching staffs in South Africa and Australia and I threw just a ton of innings but I was a junk ball lefty and, and it did 
didn't take much out of me because half my pitches were off-speed stuff. Yeah. And I wasn't facing the caliber of guys that Jim Bouton was. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was pitching against professional athletes. Yeah, Jim talked about how in the videos, he's like, you know, if I was anything other than a knuckleballer, he's like, I, I really don't think that I would have had the longevity in baseball that I did. He's like, it's not that like I had the speed. It's just the fact that I could throw a knuckleball really well. And he said, you don't know where it's, if it works right, you don't know where it's going to go. Well, the thing about the knuckleball, I'm surprised they don't have knuckleball camps in Japan because it really is a Zen kind of activity. And if you had a hundred kids lined up and just the whole, the whole idea be the ball, you know, the thing is on the release and the Mm -hmm. stiff wrist and the truth be, Jim and I never talked about it, but had Jim done what Negro had done from 19 or 20 years of age, throw exclusively knuckleballs, there's a very good chance Jim would have had the Hall of Fame career that Phil Negro did. Really? Because Jim's knuckleball, when Jim Swanson, our lefty catcher, would warm up Bouton, in the beginning, he said, this guy's 38 years old, Swanee would go back there with his glove and maybe his shin guards getting ready for the game. And by the time midseason came around, Swanee was completely decked out with a with a with a mask and the chest protector because Swanee would have his glove right there and the ball would look like it was going right there and it would hit Jim in the chest or in the Jeez. knee because because the the break was so dramatic. Mm-hmm. It was an amazing knuckleball. Huh. But Jim, I mean, we're talking about he's almost forty when he's doing that. You look at fellows like Hoyt Wilhelm and Phil Negro who were throwing it in their twenties. Uh, but it's one of those things, you know. It's almost like it's almost like I, I'm, I'm mad at Bo Jackson because he loved playing football so much, right? right. Because I yeah. thought Bo Jackson would have been a Hall of Fame baseball player. Oh, absolutely! Had he stuck to a game he was so naturally uh, gifted at, and Jim was naturally gifted. It's just that the what would you call it? the methodology, the the route, the 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 path he chose was one that was going to just beat the hell out of his arm, going to wreck it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they said the spring of uh, 1962, he's got his chance to spend with the Yankees. Uh, many people doubted he would make the major league roster. However, uh, that was not the case. At spring training, Jim uh, posted several good outings, which earned him the final roster spot. And he was given number 56 to wear. And he he, re- he wore that number uh, for the rest of his ke- career. And he, what I read about it was that he said that nobody believed in me, so might as well just wear number 56. The well, the way it worked doubters. in spring training was the, the less likely you, you were going to make the club, the higher your number. Mm-hmm. And, of course, not like that now. I mean, you look at Aaron Judge, number 99. Yeah, there you go. And and a lot of players, there are players who, who have numbers because there's something about it that works for them. 66, you know, Yasiel Puig, right? Doesn't he wear 66? Right. You know, it's, it, it's like a middle interior lineman's number. And, and then pitchers now with single-digit numbers. It's so different now. But when Jim pitched... That's the number they gave him in spring training. Like he, he was a very, he wasn't a prospect. He was a suspect, right. mm-hmm. yeah, you know, right. and when he finally made the big club and I forget the club, the clubby's name who said, Jim, you made the club. We're going to give you like number 26 or something like that. He said, no, I'm sticking with 56. I never want to forget how I got here. It yeah, was so cool. classically Jim, just an aside starting next year. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about it later. Jim has, you know, passed away earlier this uh, this year, but the 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 player on the original Big League Chew is going to wear number fifty six from now on. No oh, wow. way! Yeah. yeah, it's one small tribute to Jim. That's pretty cool. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Well, that you know, we'll talk about it later. But there'd be no Big League Chew without Jim Bouton. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah, to yeah, I was the that. dreamer, and he was the detail guy. And you need both, but more than anything, you need the detail guy. And he mm-hmm. was the bulldog 
as much in the in the boardroom as he was on the mound. Wonderful yeah. guy. So you said to join the roster uh, with talent such as Mickey Mantle, Whitey Ford, Yogi Berra, Roger Maris. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they said 1961 when he uh, Maris the previous season had set the single season home run record yeah. the previous year. But it's, it's kind of phenomenal. It you know you join a staff with people like that. But then I want to go to you, Rob, because it's like, well, when you got a guy joining your staff like a Jim Bowden. Like with the Portland Mavericks, Mavericks it's yeah. like how whoa, cool is that? It's like royalty. Well, Jim Bowden comes to the Mavericks. He's pitched in the World Series. You know, I think he lost to Don Drysdale, one nothing in '63. He won two games in the 1964 World Series. Yankees didn't win it, but they went to Game Seven because of Jim. Mm-hmm. Uh, Major League All-Star, wrote a book, famous guy. The Mavericks are an interesting collection because the commonality of all the guys is we love to play ball. I mean, it comes out in the movie, The Battered Bastards of Baseball, talks about how guys play truly for the love of the game. And so we had a Jim Bouton, but we also had a Kurt Russell. And those are the two big rock stars on the team. And those guys were awesome. They treated us. They loved being on the Mavericks. They they, they could dish it out and, and take it equally well. Jim said he had so much fun being a Maverick that nobody called him Mr. Bouton. You know, they all called him Bulldog or Jim. Mm-hmm, that's cool. And he was, just, he was just a great guy in the clubhouse. There were some photos that I saw recently of Jim in the dugout. And he's holding up a ball, and he's got three or four guys looking at him, and he's talking about how to throw a cutter or his knuckleball or something. And and it's like, it's like he is the Mahatma, and everybody's saying, "Wow, this is the guru. This is the guy." Mm-hmm. And Jim always took time with the other guys, yeah. and he also was willing to to take the heat too. When he gave up a home run to Donnie Reynolds, Harold Reynolds' brother. Huh. 3-0 pitch, Jim threw a fastball, and Donnie Reynolds hit it into downtown Portland. And I remember when Jim came off the field, I think it was Mike Geisher said, Jim, how do you hold that pitch? Because I never want to throw one of those. <laughs> and Jim loved that stuff. He loved the fact that he was part of a team where the game mattered and the team mattered. And you cut and away all the other crap, basically. Yeah. Everything was gone. You know, they, yeah, they were trimmed it away. Basically, everybody about made the same. You know, mm-hmm. a couple of Jim probably got a little bit of extra. Reggie Thomas got a little extra because they were like the stars of the show. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't Elvis. You know, we weren't. We never considered ourselves right. to be the Jordanaires. Mm-hmm. He was a Maverick who was a slight cut above, but uh, not that much. And and he didn't mind that at all. He never asked for any special privilege. He Very loved being cool. on cool. that on that wacky red school bus. Yeah. <laughs> Did you follow him as a, as a as a you know as a youth or? teenager back in when he was playing with the Yankees at all? Well, I grew up on Long Island, and my brother was playing minor league ball with the Yankees. I wanted to be the next Whitey Ford, you know, left-hander, you know, pickoff move, all the things that Whitey did. I, I emulated Whitey Ford's, even the way he walked off the mound, and Bouton was like a rock star. Funny enough, in 1964, when Jim won two games in the World Series, I was on what was called Senior Little League out of Massapequa, Long Island, mm-hmm. and we won the World Series. We beat a team from Texas, from Iowa. We beat Monterey, Mexico, 10, 12,000 people at the Louisville, Kentucky Fairgrounds. Crazy. It was really a big deal. And then when we came home, we got to go to Shea Stadium, brand new ballpark, down on the field with Ralph Kiner. So we were kind of in our own universe. And I remember Andy Sinise, one of our star pitchers, when they said, who's your favorite? player and he said not hesitating Jim Bouton I want to be the next Jim Bouton cool. so Jim was Jim was a big deal uh, right. in and around New York mm-hmm. you know he was just and and he was he was a funny guy he was a great interview before he got political before the book came out 
the writers loved him because he always had something to say that was uh-huh. interesting. Yeah. Speaking of starting, on May 6, 1962, 21 games into the season, Jim got the call and had prepared, that he'd been preparing all of his life for, which was to start a Major League Baseball game as the pitcher. He allowed seven hits and seven walks, but pitched a complete game for an 8-0 shutout. Imagine that. Seven hits, seven walks, complete game. Unheard of, right? Now. Who does that? Who does that? <laughs> yeah. Nobody. Seven walks, and he, seven hits, seven walks, and they kept him in the game. Was that yeah. the game when Mickey Mantle lined up the towels when Jim came off the field or into the clubhouse? They treated him like he was the, the newborn king. It was pretty oh, cool. no way. Yeah. But that's amazing. Your first outing, you pitch a complete game, I guess it's just different times the way that I'm looking at this, but sure. I mean a complete game, your first game, and you pitch a shutout. It's awesome. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, he would pitch a total of 36 times that season, including uh, let's see, 16 starts. He went seven and seven with a 3.99 ERA. Solid. The Yankees beat uh, the Giants in the World Series, uh, but they said that Jim didn't pitch. That's right. And that year, he got married uh, to Bobby. Heister, uh, whom he met at Western Michigan. That's right. So, um, and then in 1963, but he got a ring. He got he got a title. He's part yeah. of the reason they were there. He got yeah. two rings. Kind of cool. Yeah, he got two rings this season. Yeah, got married and got there. It is. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. That's good. <laughs> good work, dude. Good work. Yeah, that's why I keep you around. <laughs> you haven't thrown me out of your house yet. <laughs> In 1963, he came and saw Jim uh, serve six months in the U.S. Army before coming back to the Yankees that May. So uh, he he finished 21 and seven uh, with an ERA of 2.53. What a season! 30 starts, 10 relief appearances, and he pitched one inning in the All-Star game. And it says of note on September 13, 1963, Jim shut out the Twins and thus helped the Yankees clinch their fourth straight pennant. He also started in a game, uh, game three of the '63 World Series in right. Los Angeles. Lost the Drysdale. And lost the, yeah, yeah. yeah, one nothing. Yeah. Now, I remember Jim told me that you because know, Whitey drive, Whitey yeah. Ford pitched the first game and uh, he lost to Koufax three to two, and he said, you know, had I pitched against Koufax, we would have won two to one. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty funny. Jeez. He became teammates with Tommy Davis, who. Uh, uh, was on the Dodger team and hit, drove in the only run of the game. Mm-hmm. A hot shot off of Bobby Richardson's glove, second base. And when Jim and Tommy Davis became teammates on the Seattle Pilots, <laughs> they had this running routine that Jim said, I can't believe they gave you a hit for that. I mean, that, that's a ball that Bobby Richardson normally eats up. And Tommy Davis, I hit, that was a rocket shot. I hit it 200 miles an hour. So they had that banter and... and yeah. I just love that. I mean, I love that about the game. It's one of the reasons I yep. stuck around as long as I could, even at <laughs> lower levels. Just I love the give and take of the game, and so did Jim. Mm-hmm. So right after the 63 season, uh, right after the World Series, uh, his son Michael was born. So, you know, play in the World Series, then have your son born. Uh, said he would settle down in suburban New Jersey, not far from where he, uh, he grew up as a child. Uh, by the end of the 60s, Michael would be joined by his sister, Lori, and Koyong Jo, an adopted brother from Korea who later changed his name to David. That's right. Uh, I read this <clears throat> interesting thing about uh, Jim and 
how he perceived Mickey Mantle and, and Roger Maris. He said, after two or three years of playing with guys like Mantle and Maris, I was no longer odd. I started to look at these guys as people, and mm-hmm. I didn't like what I saw. They were, the fi- fu- they were fine as baseball heroes. As men, they were not quite so successful. <laughs> at the same time, I guess I started to rub a lot of people the wrong way. And uh, some of what I read talked about how during this time and and prior, writers spoke of these guys, meaning like Maris and Mantle, as like these epic heroes. Yeah. And godlike status. Godlike status. And then, you know, you you see this, but then. That's flawed right there to do that, right? Exactly. Yeah, I I think that, I think that had, were Jim alive today, he, he would back off from that a little bit because it wasn't so much the guys were. Not up to standard. It's just that the standards were so unreasonable yeah. that they would treat these guys as if they were deities. Right. And they were just regular guys with their own issues, their own Especially problems. Especially considering where baseball, how it played in Americana in terms of culture back then, too, yep. as, as, as so elevated compared to everything else. That's exactly. And it was that elevation, I think, that, yeah. that bothered Jim. And, uh, yeah. you know, I. I you think of Roger Maris, who came into the city, and, and he's the one who hit the 61 home runs. Yeah. And most of the press and most of the fans wanted, if anybody's going to break the Babe's record, it should be the hometown hero, you know, Mickey Mantle. Even though he was an Oklahoma kid, he was like a, a, a hero in the Yankee hmm. uh, fan base. And he was more engaging, had a better smile, and Roger was kind of a quiet, you know, to-himself kind of guy. So... I, th- I think that Jim would agree with me that Roger Maris was not a bad guy, good mm-hmm. family man, good teammate, and so forth. But kind of shy, and maybe that was taken for and arrogance, also arrogance yeah, and shy in the sense that sometimes yeah. came across as being aloof or surly. Sure. And Jim had told me, you know, over the last ten years or so that that, that Roger, he he was just a humble guy and a quiet guy, and a lot of people misread that. That yeah. he that he wasn't he wasn't rude. It's just that he, he really was kind of ill-equipped. Not quite as accessible. He wasn't quite exactly as accessible. Right. That's and exactly yeah. the word. He yep. was not not accessible the way Mickey Mantle sure. was. And of course, the fact that Mickey Mantle was such an easygoing guy created problems for him because he was kind of taken down the path with Billy Martin and Whitey Ford and nights out in Manhattan at the Copa and and all these silly things that wouldn't be tolerated today because the club would say, "Hey, you are our." You know, are a cash cow. We need you in better shape. We need you ready to play every day. And and you know, a lot of people would say that that just wasn't the case with Mickey Mantle. He he enjoyed free he, passes. Yeah. He enjoyed being a big leaguer and, and kind of the tradition of Babe Ruth. I mean, Babe Ruth yeah. led the league in many categories, but excess certainly was oh, one of yeah. them. And that was kind of it was viewed as being oh, that's the Babe being the Babe. Mm. Today it, w- it would be viewed less. What less yeah. hospitably? Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. And makes sense. it's it's interesting that I, I also read this. Leonard uh, Schechter, a writer for the New York Post, wrote this of Jim, and it kind of goes along with a little bit about what you're saying. He says he stands out because he's a decent young man in a game which is not recognized, which is not rec- which does not recognize decency as valuable. In in many ways, that's true. Yeah. I think I think that um, you know baseball. Let's face it, back at Back when Jim was playing, it was a different game. You, when you had 
uh, a Juan Marichal from the Dominican. You know, it was it was like a rarity. You know, Elston right, Howard. Right. I mean, I was talking about this with friends this weekend. Ellie Howard was the first black Yankee. The fact that my business partner pitched to the first black New York Yankee, to me, is it, it, it's astounding. It is. That the world was so slow to understand that, you know, these guys can play. You yeah. know, and and it didn't matter what league they were from or what color they were, what their background was. You want guys who can play. As as, as it turned out, Ellie Howard was a great team player, classy guy. You know, MVP American League, nineteen sixty three, oh, okay. great athlete, yeah. great athlete. But it when you think about that, that one of my buddies pitched against, pitched to rather, you know, uh, uh, an icon, but the first ever Black New York Yankee. It just it. It still baffles me yeah. that that could be the case in my lifetime. And I remember it. I'm 14 years old it's when crazy. Ellie Howard was playing for the Yankees. Wow. Yeah. That's that's awesome. I read that uh, Jim also had to fight each and every year with the Yankees over his contract. <laughs> it is said that Jim oh. informed the press as to what he was looking for. <laughs> he said being, he didn't do it privately, in no, other words. No. He didn't. He put it out no. there. He said, being honest with the press uh, angered Yankees general manager Ralph Huck Huck would uh, in 1964 force Jim to accept a contract worth eighteen thousand five hundred dollars. It's crazy. You know, Jim won 21 games. I think they offered him 29 grand, and he held out for 32. And the press was all over him, saying, "You know what? He's not a team guy. He's out for himself. He's got a wife and three kids, and he wants 32 grand for pitching in the big leagues." I mean, let's face it, guys make that in a couple of innings today. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bryce Harper, a few at-bats, right? Yeah. No, like seconds, probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what? I don't begrudge the guys making the big dollars today. Sure. I mean, it's it's a tough industry. It's funny. Nobody says Tom Hanks makes too much money being an actor. Right. And, and yet they'll talk about ballplayers who have a, a three- or five-game slump, and they'll say this guy, they're overpaying right. that it's guy. Interesting. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a pressure-packed career, and uh, to rise to the top like that, uh, I, I think that they should earn as much as they can. A lot of the fans think that, you know, if the players didn't make so much, the ticket prices would be lower, and that's just not true. It's just yeah. not true. So, so Jim finished the 64 season uh, with 18 wins, 13 losses, and a 3.02 ERA. He led the league with 37 starts, started and won two World Series games, and he had a 1.4 ERA. <laughs> In three World Series that's, games, that's the most I think Jim thing is right one of the. It's probably big, big game picture. Probably game. top ten New York Yankee World Series stats. Mm-hmm. He was he was a money player. Huh? Did do you think that he really thrived in that type of environment? He told me a great story, and I think it's in one of his books where it's it's before they're going out for the World Series. Uh, he he. Uh, he, he confided in Ralph Houck and, and, and said words to the effect that uh, that this is really fun. I, re- I really love doing this. And, and it was it was it just and what he said was like, just being here is such such an honor. And he said, Ralph Houck could have said, what do you mean just being here? We're out here to win. And Houck didn't do that. They're, they're both two guys looking out at a green grass and a crowd and the banners and all the, the, he got all the it. hubbub. He got it. Absolutely got it. That, you know, yeah. we're lucky to be here. And you want to win, but you know what? If you don't win, they're never going to take it away from you. You were out there. Yeah. 
went on to 1965 to show up at spring training and this is where what i was reading it kind of started going down a little bit at this point in time for for jim himself he said he so showed up with a sore bicep to spring training that year started that breakdown maybe yeah Yeah. and they said that the he said that the yankees organization and and jim didn't really want to recognize the fact that he had a sore bicep so they just he's like he's pushing himself and the yankees organization pushed him to continue to pitch through it and uh, he finished with a four and fifteen record with a four point eight two ERA. Uh, by nineteen sixty six, his ERA went down to two point six nine, but he had a three point eight three and eight record. And by nineteen sixty seven, his performance during the season sent him down to Triple A Syracuse, and he had a three point three six ERA in the minors with a two and eight record. And he wrote himself this that year by saying the roughest part is having an a, a having to do having to admit I'm not good enough, and this is the biggest reason why I'm fighting to make it back to the big leagues. Hmm. Yeah, it, it's it, it's stunning, you know. It, it going back to Pat Jordan's book, the A False Spring, when he uh, had been. A little league and high school standout. He had little league games where he struck out seventeen guys in a six inning game, and he said, "You got to Kearney, Nebraska, and, uh, and and you're getting lit up like a Christmas tree. You just can't believe that your stuff isn't good enough." And in Jim's situation, when you've won twenty one games, when you've won eighteen games, when you have two in the World Series, yeah, and then you That's realize a standard right there, you realize you can't do it. It's, there's a great line by Tom Seaver talking about the end of his career, and he says, "You know, I'm throwing the." ball just as hard as I ever did it just doesn't reach home plate as quick <laughs> <You Nice. know? laughs> such a great line you feel like you're doing the same thing but you're you're losing you're losing that edge yeah. it's it's a hard thing to accept the fact that Jim was willing to can't say humble himself but but self-assess where he needed to go to get back into the big leagues and the knuckleball was his was his ticket it took a lot of courage to do that yeah and not all people are willing to admit that, I guess. Yeah. That they're where they're at as a as an individual. Remake where they yourself. Need to be. Well, Remake no yourself, question. Yeah. You know, when I got out of Cornell, uh, I had no chance to play pro ball, and I had a job teaching in upstate New York. And in the gym, I had a, an architect friend of mine built me just, and it was like the Yeti of pitchers' mounds. It was just so overbuilt, and I couldn't. I think Cornell still uses it. I donated it to the team. This is back in the early seventies. But I threw 100 knuckleballs a night uh, in the elementary school gym. And I wrote to Jim. He was doing TV by that time. Hmm. And I said, uh, pretty, I had one good year of college. I still love baseball. I want to keep playing. Uh, and my knuckleball just isn't doing it. I'm only throwing one out of 10 that doesn't tumble. Hmm. Can I have 10 minutes of your time? And he was down in New Jersey. He was doing TV in, in, in New York. And he wrote me a postcard. And he said, uh, Here's my number. Give me a call when you think we can meet. And we met in Teaneck, New Jersey. And that was just before I went overseas to play ball in South Africa, summer of 73. And he didn't give me 10 minutes. He gave me like 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so when he showed up two years later, we both, me by way of Cape Town and Jim by way of wherever he was prior to that, Mexico, I think, we ended up being Portland Maverick teammates. And when, I was telling this story recently that when he walked in the clubhouse and I said, Jim, I don't know if you remember me. I'm Rob Nelson. We we threw knuckleballs together in Teaneck, New Jersey. At, at I forget the name of the park. And he said, if I remember it, I threw knuckleballs and you tried to throw knuckleballs. I said, <laughs> I said, yeah, that's about it. But the fact that he gave me 45 minutes, total stranger, mm-hmm. kind of cool. set the table.
table for me what kind of guy Jim was. Mm-hmm. He just, he, you know, again, going back to that whole thing that he never forgot why he loved the game and the roots of the game and why he, why he wouldn't give up on it. Yeah. It's pretty cool. I would say that Jim ended up returning to the Yankees that year, uh, and then he also returned in 1968. Uh, but then he had ended up being sold to the Seattle Pilots, who were an expansion team that wouldn't start till 1969. Yeah, so they didn't protect Jim, and and the Pilots uh, looked at the roster and said, "This guy used to be somebody. We'll give him a shot." Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it for there, and uh, we'll, we'll be back again next week to continue talking more about Jim and uh, finishing up kind of like where he was at with his career. Then we'll talk more. We'll talk the Mavericks and then we'll lead into uh, Big League Chew and also uh, where he went from there. So, Rob, thanks for for sharing some great memories. Always a pleasure. You guys are awesome. Uh, Look forward to next week. All right. Well, with that said, I'm Ben. And I'm Dave. And And I'm Rob. And you have a great day wherever you're at. Peace out.